Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Voice of Vashon, 101.9 FM, KVSH. You are listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, hosted by me, fellow Islander, March Twisdale. I am talking with Sister Simone Campbell, who's all the way over in the other Washington, Washington, D.C. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's lovely to talk to you. Yes, I am super glad we could make this work on such short notice. Yeah, it's a challenge with all of our calendars, but this is perfect. So folks, I'm talking to Sister Simone today because she's going to be on the Nuns on a Bus tour that's going across the U.S. I'm going to have her tell you guys a little bit about who she is, and then we are going to dive into this whole giant, amazing, fun topic. Sure, happy to have the chance to do that. Okay, I'm Sister Simone Campbell. I'm a Sister of Social Service. I... um, joined my community after my freshman year in college because I was really committed to civil rights and I had a sense of urgency that I needed to stand up and uh, be involved and my community is all involved in social work and after a few years in my community as a social worker I realized oh, I'm not so good as a social worker I'm not very patient and so I ended up going to law school and um, found a much better use for my talents. So I'm a lawyer, California lawyer. After uh, law school, discovered I really liked practicing law. So I started a low-cost legal service center that did direct service, all the high-conflict, low-income family law cases in Alameda County. That's mm-hmm. Oakland, California, in the Bay Area. And uh, I did that for 18 years. And then it was like my child, and uh, it had grown, and we had six attorneys and paralegals and all that. But it was like my child, and it wasn't going away to college. So I knew <laughs> for it to continue, I needed to to leave and do something else. And I had an idea for something else to do, but then I got elected to head my community for five years. And my community is based in Los Angeles, but we're in the U.S., Mexico, Taiwan, and the Philippines. And in that capacity, I got a much stronger feel of the international realities that we that our sisters face around the globe and um, kind of informed got me interested in policy again mm-hmm. I ended up doing state policy in California and then got recruited to come here to uh, DC to head network which is a lobby for Catholic social justice and I came here in no I started November 1st 2004 And so here I am 14 years later, still doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a wonderful uh, ministry and engagement where we work on Capitol Hill to uh, work for economic justice, to bridge the income and wealth disparities in our nation, especially the gaps between the very top and folks in the bottom 40 percentile um, that's getting bigger and not Mm -hmm. smaller. In a word, I'm a, a failed a social worker, but a very avid lawyer working at this advocacy piece here in D.C. And I want to thank you for being brave enough to take on that type of a project, because so many of us, I think, just would get hives thinking about trying to affect change in social policy. That's huge. Uh, it's challenging, that's for sure. I, I mean, I often joke we're not going to be out of work. We might be out of money, but we won't be out of work. Right. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so when you spoke um, earlier, you mentioned community. And do you mean by that um, the sisterhood? 
Right. I'm a Catholic sister, and our, the name of our community of our is the Sisters of Social Service. So the way there's Sisters of St. Joseph, Sisters of Providence, Holy Name Sisters, those are all in your area that I think mm -hmm. folks might be aware of. The name of my group is Sisters of Social Service. We actually had one of our sisters lived in um, uh, West Seattle for a while, so... Um, she did some ministry work with uh, low-income families and newborns, having uh, first children, helping low-income mm -hmm. families assimilate their newborn and do care and well-baby uh, clinics and that kind of thing. Right, right. So many people probably think of nuns as being people who have gone into seclusion and, you know, they're separated away from... Um, the rest of society. And then other people think of Mother Teresa. So there's a lot of different perspectives or, or images that people have. And I think it's a little surprising when I hear of someone who has been in social work and then became a lawyer. And, and you did all that while you were a sister. Well, I mean, I think, I don't know, television has not been helpful for the image of Catholic sisters. And um, I think that there are some old, old stereotypes about what does it mean. But the fact is, for the last 50 years uh, in religious life, it's all been about, for the most part, for women religious, it's been about the engagement in society. And, and in your area, the Sisters of Providence started the Providence Hospital System and are heavily engaged in that. Uh, so, I mean, we're used to being really public, really responsible and engaged. There's several uh, justice centers in the Northwest there. I don't know why the stereotype holds on. Mm -hmm. but I, I was talking to somebody the other day saying, oh, my God, that's so 1500s. Get over <laughs> Well, and you look, though, at this picture, for example. Um, so you wrote a book. It's called A, Nun, on the Bus, uh, subtitled How All of Us Can Create Hope, Change, and Community. And the picture there, which is of you and a couple of your sisters behind you, and you've even got some of the bus in there, but you're wearing completely normal clothing. So <laughs> if you're walking down the hallway in the middle of D.C. and, and I'm walking the other direction, I'm not going to recognize that you're actually a sister within the Catholic Church who is politically active and doing good. I just see a person in a cute suit walking by. So I think maybe maybe that might be part of it. I mean, because if, if you walked into a hospital and you had a bunch of you know people in a traditional habit walk past you, you would get it. Oh, wow, there's activity here. You know, there's nuns that are active in this area. So I wonder if that's part of it. Yeah, that could be. I also think there's a way in which nuns make people nervous. Um, uh, and, and so we'd rather not change the stereotype. <laughs> so oh. if you're just with me as a dressed in, you know, regular dress, then you gotta, <laughs> as one guy told me one time, he says, well, then I have to be on my good behavior all the time. I have to be worried. Are you, is that person a nun? And if you wear a habit, then I just know who it is. And then I know when I have to shape up. Well, I thought that was kind of an amusing <laughs> approach. So, well, uh, yeah, it sounds, mm, huh. Okay, all righty. So let's see here then. You wrote the book and right. how yeah. all of us can create hope, change, and community. And why don't you go ahead and let's start off with just give us a sense of why you wrote the book and what you were hoping your readers would get out of the book. Well, 
um, the the book is really about our first nuns on the bus trip mm-hmm. and how that happened and why it happened. And so it sets up, it tries to explain to ordinary folks um, what some of the struggles were for uh, women religious Catholic sisters with the Vatican back in 2012. There was a bit of unpleasantness with the past Pope, Pope Benedict. What people have to understand is politically within the Catholic Church, it started uh, probably about 2008, but then got exacerbated in 2010 with the Affordable Care Act. I mean, that's where we got involved, Mm -hmm. is that the Affordable Care Act, uh, while not being a perfect bill, was a significant step forward in getting health care to the people of our nation. And so we had worked as an organization, my organization network had worked for our entire existence. Uh, we were founded in 1971, opened our doors in 72. And the very first paper we issued in 72 was on the need for health care reform. Mm-hmm. So we had worked on health care reform from the beginning of our organization. And in 2010, we had a chance to finally make a legislative change. And while it wasn't a perfect bill, it was better than the status quo. And so we supported the Affordable Care Act. And just before the uh, Affordable Care Act came up for a vote, Catholic Health Association came out in support of it. I drafted the support for it from our organization. I said, well, what else could I do? And that was to do a sign-on letter, which we do all the time, to get Catholic sisters who run hospitals to sign on as being a good step forward. Mm -hmm. And while that letter was out for signature by these sisters, the Catholic bishops came out opposing the Affordable Care Act. So after the Catholic bishops came out, then we came out with the sisters' letter, which is called the nuns' letter, to support the Affordable Care Act. (laughs) The bishops got really bad advice from their staff. I mean, that's what happened. The staff told them that the Affordable Care Act provided federal funding for abortion, which it does not. And two federal courts have found as a matter of law, that means without question, there is no federal funding of abortion in the Affordable Care Act. But the bishops had gotten advice from their staff that there was. Mm -hmm. I think it was politically motivated. They Mm -hmm. didn't want to give the Obama administration a win. I mean, everything here in D.C. is so political. Mm -hmm. And so we came out in favor of the ACA because when I read it, you know, among other things, there was not funding for abortion. But the other piece was it was going to get health care to 25 million people. Mm -hmm. And for me, that is also a life issue is getting health care for all. So that happened in 2010. And as one of the sisters said who signed the letters, he said, oh, Simone, don't worry about all the controversy that we created with the bishops, because the bishops were attacking the sisters and in the press and doing all this negative stuff. Mm-hmm. So, no, don't worry about it. What happened was the girls played the boys, and for once the girls won. <laughs> and boys are upset. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was 2010. Well, right. two years later, two years later, the Vatican issues a censure, a a scolding to the Catholic sisters in the United States, especially to the Leadership Conference of Women Religious. That's the association of all the leaders of Catholic sisters in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And they named our little organization, Network, that at the time had nine full-time staff, as being a bad influence on Catholic sisters. 
Interesting. Well, so we work too much on the issues of poverty and not enough on the issues the bishops care about, gay marriage and abortion. Well, I mean, our mission is to work on the issues of poverty. So I thought, well, that's a badge of honor. But mm-hmm. they were um, they were seriously upset. So what happened was, and this is what the book is about. The book sets out that setup, but then it really talks about how we use the moment of notoriety of conflict mm-hmm. for uh, to lift up our work for economic justice. Mm-hmm. And we push back against the Paul Ryan budget. He wasn't speaker at the time, he was head of the budget committee. Uh, his budget would cut services to low-income people. To push back against that budget, lift up the works of Catholic sisters. And we did it by doing this nuns on the bus. I mean, it was just kind of this amazing thing that caught fire, but it was Catholics and non-Catholics alike coming together to affirm the works of Catholic sisters in our country. The bus became a place of joy and hope in a really challenging time. So that was our first bus trip, and the amazing piece about it was that, that we could create joy and hope in what otherwise was a politically challenging time, not as challenging as right now, mm-hmm. but certainly a, a difficult time where we were really trying to move forward, caring for the 100% in our nation. Right. Um, I like that, the 100%. Yeah. I like it a lot, but it's really hard to do. <laughs> well, it was really um, interesting when you mentioned earlier when you talked about how you seek to bridge the divide and to reduce the divide between the very, very wealthy at the top and the 40% at the bottom. People still tend to have this impression that there's like 5% of people who are poor and, you know, 5% of people who are super wealthy and this big, this big middle class. And yet it's, Um, we're becoming such a bottom heavy um, nation when it comes to economic lack of privilege. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that we're working really hard now on and uh, here at Network at our organization is to help people understand the truth of 21st century poverty. Mm-hmm. And the truth of 21st century poverty is about low wages, low wages in a gig economy. Mm-hmm. And certainly, I, I don't know that your islands experience so much. I know more Seattle's. And so we're basically I mean, Seattle. But, yeah, very similar. Yeah, okay. We're that close. But the experience with Uber drivers or folks being hired on as independent contractors at Amazon or being paid low wages at Amazon, Mm -hmm. the real reality is the struggle, the hard struggle of families in our nation. Mm -hmm. And Paul Ryan, who's now Speaker of the House, wants to talk about, well, the real problem is people are poor because they're lazy. That is a lie. Yes. Um, And we've got to be real about it. Um, well, and of course, there I mean, are some- just automatically the greatest irony is that people who are poor in this country at this time, in many places, are the ones who are literally working the 60, 70, 80 hours a week, which is actually the definition of not lazy. And then, you know, <laughs> yeah. you've got the desire in the very high level of the wealth class to expand their holdings which basically means you have people who, when you're born with so much money, you can work if you wish to, you can expand if you want, but you really don't have to. 
And so yeah. the irony, of course, this is the great lie that is presented out there is just call the poor lazy and then everyone will let you screw them over, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Your words, not mine, but I share the sentiment. <laughs> yes, my words, my words. <laughs> so, so real quick, so you're you were talking about um, networks. So let's be clear, so people can find you. So the website you would want to go to, folks, is networklobby.org. And what's really cool about that is that it covers a wide array of what you guys are involved with. But right now, of course, right there on the front page is the picture of the bus, and it says. <laughs> Tax Justice Truth Tour, and it's got a picture of the continental U.S., and it's got your tour drawn out going right across the middle of the country. Now, we talked earlier before the interview started, and you guys are basically aiming for what you call flippable districts, but this is not one political party versus the other political party. This is more along the lines of who voted for the tax bill and can the people say, hey, that actually hurt us, you know? And so it sounds like that's sort of the conversation you're trying to start. Tell us a little bit more about some of these flippable districts, what they look like and what you're expecting to find and how you're going to engage with them as you travel through. Right. Well, let's let the first one that we're going to is in Irvine, California, Mimi Walters district. And in her district, she voted both for the tax bill and against health care, uh, all the various efforts to undermine the Affordable Care Act or anything else for health care. And in her district, she has both, uh, it's a very wealthy area, but there's also a large service population of folks who have used Medicaid exchanges to buy insurance. So they use the um, government subsidies to help them pay for their uh, monthly premiums. Mm -hmm. And the result of her voting for the tax bill and to undermine health care means that she's hurting her people. One, she's hurting the people at the top because of the limitation on the deduction for the state and local tax. It's called the SALT tax. Mm -hmm. uh, the SALT provision uh, is that many of her people are going to end up paying more taxes, ironically. But the second piece is is that many of the low-income people end up having to pay more taxes because of deductions and then not being able to get the uh, subsidies because the Republican plan is to cut the subsidies to the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. So her people end up hurt on two levels, both for the wealthy and for the, uh, the bottom 40%. So we want to say to her, Why'd you do that to your people? Why'd you vote mm -hmm. to hurt your people? What's going on? Then well, say to the people, mm -hmm. you can you get to choose who you elect. Is this good for you? Or do you think another candidate would be better? Given that you're speaking about someone in particular, has she on her, you know, website or wherever she gives out her promotional information about her views, you know, her newsletters and whatnot, has she given a storyline or an argument for why she thinks this is gonna be better for people? Her line is that, well, this will boost the economy. The mm. economy will grow. Which is essentially and trickle down. It's a trickle down argument. She doesn't really engage the issue at all about the cuts that uh, have been proposed as a result of this uh, increase in our deficit. I'm not sure people realize that this bill by Republicans who claim they were always 
so fiscally conservative, Mm -hmm. you know, that we really had to balance our budget. This bill, the the tax law that they passed, put another $1.5 trillion into the deficit. Now, I'm not a huge deficit hawk. I mean, we can manage deficits and all this, but this was irresponsible in my book. Hmm. It's hard for people to imagine that much money, $1.5 trillion. So one of our staff here figured out, okay, well, how do we think about it? Mm-hmm. So every second was a dollar. Okay, got the idea that every second is a dollar. Right. 1.5 trillion seconds is 47,000 years. Oh. <laughs> That's, That's a few extra mind. zeros than I was going to put in there. <laughs> yeah. And that's the quantity of money that wow. is being taken out of our capacity to care for our nation in order to give tax breaks to corporations and the most wealthy. Well, I thought our government was the area where we combine our resources so that we can support common activities and and take care of each other, you know, the commons, so to speak, whether it's social programs or whether it's the physical commons. What you just brought up sort of reminded me of that question of, if this woman says we're doing this tax bill because it's going to be good for the economy, I think my question would be, is the, quote, economy supposed to be your priority or is the commons and the people supposed to be your priority? Well, I I mean, you're exactly raising the critical question on the role of government. And as a Catholic sister, I, I look to a lot of what our teaching is. Pope Francis has this great thing about how you know, people are supposed to be served by the economy. People are not supposed to serve the economy. Mm-hmm. But the way uh, that what you just mentioned about getting jobs and stuff, that's making people in service of the economy. Uh, often we hear in D.C., oh, we couldn't possibly do, uh, you know, uh, it, well, right now they're saying we can't do infrastructure because, you know, we have to protect the economy. Well, quite frankly, if we don't invest in our infrastructure, we're n- our economy is not going to be able to flourish. Uh, you look at what happened in the hurricanes down in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if you've got, ero- you know, poor dams that are collapsing mm-hmm. and eroding roadways, I mean, an economy can't flourish. I mean, that's part, from my view, that's part of our responsibility to, to each other is to create a society where people can be safe, can grow, can flourish, and that the responsibility of government is to protect an even playing field, to make sure that everybody has access mm-hmm. and discrimination, provide for those who uh, have fallen on hard times and make sure that we can, all of us, flourish together. Well, and what's uh, interesting, you just said about how it's being used as an excuse to not rebuild infrastructure. I remember Bernie Sanders speaking about the value of re-energizing our infrastructure is that if we were, and this is interesting, it's about the same amount. You were talking about the one trillion additional debt. Um, But he was, you know, at one point saying, if we put a trillion dollars into developing the infrastructure, how do you think that infrastructure gets built and created? It's by people who are employed and hired to design, build, and create those structures. So right. if anything, it 
if you were concerned about the quote economy as this entity in and of itself, you build the economy when you invest in your infrastructure. Yeah, do you want or to come am I to getting DC? it wrong? Am I wrong? No, you got it totally right. Okay, all right. You could come to DC. We could have you here. That'd be great. Oh, uh, yeah, right. If only you just needed logic in DC. <laughs> right. Oh, it seems to be in short supply these days. So you. So okay. Alrighty. Now, tax policy. I know that many people are aware that there's something that's gone on. In at the federal level, and there was a tax thing that was passed. And like a lot of people, maybe on Facebook or on the news, caught a little piece of this or that. But these are usually like what, 900 page documents full of a million tiny little words, and there's all sorts of details. What are a couple of things about this tax policy? You already talked about the new debt, but, but what are a couple of things that people just totally would be shocked to hear? And and would say, okay, okay, now I am energized to want to pay a little bit more attention. <laughs> well, I think the the challenge with tax policy is you say most people's eyes glaze over at this, and they just think, ugh, taxes, forget it. But I think it's the intersection. It's the, some of the challenges or the intersection between programs we care about and. Um, and taxes, and that's mm-hmm. that's really where the intersection is. Some of the things I find horrifying in the tax bill is that about 89% of all the tax uh, cuts go to either corporations or the top 5% of income earners. Which makes uh, no sense. I mean... No, they don't need it. From a community perspective, it makes no sense. <laughs> right. Okay. Um and then what's in the president's budget to deal with as a result, because we have this, you know, oh, my heavens, we don't have the revenue anymore, so we have to cut. And where do we cut? Right. We cut Medicaid. We cut food stamps. We cut um, investment, as we've already said, in infrastructure. We cut education. We cut housing development. And you folks in the Seattle area, I mean, you have a horrible housing crisis and people mm-hmm. are waking up to it. Right. but. It's going to require some new investment in low and moderate income housing and not just all the luxury condos that are going up lickety split. So at just at a time where our society has bigger need, then the Republicans say, oh, well, we've got to cut programs because we just don't have the money. Mm -hmm. And and it's that intersection. So this is a big money move. It's like we're going to take money from um, all sorts of social programs and other things that are good for the commons. And we're going to take it away from there and we're going to go over here and we're going to hand it essentially to the people who are already basically in power, which just increases their power over the system. And that's literally basically what's happening. Right. And in fact, (laughs) they did they handed the money over first and then said, oh, surprise. Right. (gasps) We don't have revenue. Now we have to cut. Oh, sure, so sure. sorry. Yeah, and they're yeah. even saying, they're even saying Medicare and Social Security, which I think is a, a huge political mistake to say nothing of a substantive mistake, because quite frankly, most of us have paid into Social Security and Medicare mm-hmm. for decades, right. as long as we've lived or worked in, you know, in paid employment. And so the idea that they're going to treat this as some of their slush fund to pay off their, 
giveaway to the those at the top. Oh man! But right. to be honest, I... well, yes, but it wouldn't surprise me at all for them to try to do that and to even expect to get away with it. And I want to come back to the subtitle of your book where you said how all of us can create hope, change, and community. Um, the the thing I find interesting is the role of hopelessness in America right now. There are so many people I know of who have not yet claimed Social Security. They're a few years away from it. And if and when they hear these things being talked about, you know, rather than triggering in them this sense of outrage and, and how dare you, you can't do that, I'm going to go make sure that it doesn't happen. Instead, most people I know will just sort of say, honestly... I don't think I'm ever going to get Social Security. I'm pretty sure they're going to they're going to rob it, you know, rob us of it, and it's it's going to be gone. And so I'm trying to prepare for my retirement with the assumption that I won't get Social Security because I think that they're going to basically destroy it before I get old enough to benefit from it. Now, if that's what people in their 40s and 50s are saying, and that and then younger kids are like, they look at it and go. Pfft, yeah, that ain't going to be around, you know, four decades from now. So then that means that in a way we're sort of dependent upon the people who are already receiving it, you know, the baby boomer generation to stand up and advocate. And I'm wondering, are you seeing um, very much advocacy in that community for protecting oh, absolutely. it? Absolutely. I, I think that is <laughs> us baby boomers. We're sort of in the habit of being advocates. But I'll tell you, the other piece that really worries me about that, that fatalistic approach, right. is it denies the reality of democracy. Democracy is about we the people. And we the people need to stand together on this. Mm-hmm. And that it's not for the benefit of the few. And if we become cynical, which I understand the temptation to it, there are days where I just want to pull the covers over my head and hide in my bed. I get it. But the fact is that we have the chance of making a difference, but hope is a communal virtue. Mm -hmm. And that requires us to be connected and caring about each other and to end the unpatriotic lie that we're based in individualism. I mean, this whole idea of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, I mean, I'm sorry, but some of us don't have boots. Some of us are barefoot. But what is required is that we notice the condition of each other and say, hey, we'll help together. Mm-hmm. The fact is, as a nation, we are based in we the people. That's the Constitution. We the people. All of us working together. And so I think it may be easier just to be fatalistic, grim. It's not going to happen. But if we take that tack, then I can guarantee you, you won't have Social Security. Right. But what I can guarantee you is if we come together, work across generations and speak up for the common good, then, you know, Social Security has been a reality for 60, 70 years. It could be the reality for another 70 as long as we invest. Mm-hmm. But it's up to us. It's up to us. So two thoughts. One is that you said that when you came out of, I believe it was college, you had a real sense of urgency around the civil rights movement and issues that were going on. And I think people, they watch the movies, you know, the black and white television um, images. And, and, you know, we have this, a lot of people who are like maybe anyone, anyone in their 30s and 40s 
right now has no personal recollection of that experience. And people younger, it's really this vague thing that they've heard about. But we tend to forget, I think, just how easy it would have been to have been hopeless in those times about those issues. And yet people didn't give up on hope. And as a result, we ended up overcoming some really incredibly horrific challenges. Can you speak a little bit to some experience that you may have had that you look back on in your life and say, okay, this looks really intensely hard to do, but we did that, therefore we can do this? <laughs> oh, my glory. Yeah, there's a bunch. Of, I mean, healthcare for me is one, uh, this fight here that has gone on for, I mean, it took us 100 years to pass healthcare reform, but we finally did it. Um, I, I think also another one is the supplement, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, is for years there were hungry kids in our nation, and it took, in the 60s, uh, Bobby Kennedy did this uh, poverty tour in, in the southern part of our country, Mississippi, Alabama, and saw kids that were malnourished and came back and said, we have to do something about it. Well. It took another 15 years, but finally there was a bipartisan agreement um, in, between McGovern, Senators McGovern and Dole, uh, Dole a Republican, McGovern a Democrat, to say, no, this is wrong. Kids should be able to eat. And we passed uh, what was then food stamps and has now become the supplemental, SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And But it took years of wrestling with the problem, coming to uh, a decision, but both party, both sides in our hyper-partisanship saw that kids shouldn't go hungry. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of shared vision that we need now. And I think the place where we're really missing is missing the fact that whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, it really is about we need to work together with different ideas, different perspectives, but we need to work together to make our nation better. It's not about the political game. Mm -hmm. And too often this politics right now is more like a game. It's like the Seahawks, you know, right. you, know, have you, you know, how'd you do on the weekend? Did you win? Did you score? Did you get a point? And that's not what governance is about. Governance is about solving tough problems. And uh, right now we've got some big issues with regards to, you know, how are we going to create a farm bill that cares for farmers, but cares for hungry kids? Mm -hmm. And there's stalemate between the House and the Senate. But what it takes is us, we the people, saying, no, we need to take care of both. It's not either or. Does, um, doesn't it seem to you that the... The problems and even the potential solutions to those problems are actually probably an area where the vast majority of people share um, in a similar viewpoint. And that within the theater of the political spectrum, as it is promoted by the carefully controlled and managed media um, powers that be, that this false narrative that there are these drastically different opinions exist, 
amongst the majority of the people that that really most people are in this deep gray middle zone where they share so much in common and would be in agreement maybe 95% of the time but they're told that this this false idea that we're all in this black and white world way over there and way over there with like no intersection in the middle yeah i think that's a that's a fair point certainly all of the polling evidence is much more um much closer perspectives on the issues than on the candidates, on partisanship. And right now in D.C. at the federal level, there is so much fear about for Republicans, about it being real Republicans, that they're all morphing to follow uh, our current president because they see he has power and they're afraid that there will be a backlash against them if they act as Republicans. And so what's happening is, is business actually is being left out of the uh, actual political conversation, though business is still funding a lot of the campaigns. They're really not at the table when it comes to crafting legislation. Uh, Business was at the table about the corporate tax uh, cuts, but they've not been at the table for conversations around infrastructure, for conversations around um, the trying to solve some of the problems that we're facing around education, uh, uh, training. Uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch that they, because politicians, Republican politicians want to look more like Trump than Republicans. And that's hard. That's a hard truth. So you're in, you're in D.C., and one person I know who lives here on the island had had been really um, concerned about whether Trump was going to be elected. And in conversations around sort of Hillary and Bernie and other things, you know, he has said what really matters is not so much the person that's in the Oval Office. He said what really matters is what they're going to do to all of the staffers that fill D.C., he says, you know, it's not the senator or the representative who actually really does much. It's the 15 <laughs> staffers that work for that person. And then you go to like the FDA or the USDA or, you know, CDC. You go to these different all the, groups. All the agencies. All the agencies. Yeah. There you go. So you go to all the agencies and and it's the effect that an administration can have on the agencies. And he said that's where D.C. actually happens not in the theater of the politicians, but down in all the minutia of all the people. And that seems to be, uh, I'm wondering, you're in D.C., what are you seeing going on amongst the, quote, people who make everything run and happen, the non-politicians? What's going on with that community? Well, I know that there are many career Uh, people in the various departments and agencies who are having an extremely hard time with the current administration. One, because they are, uh, the leadership is all about undermining anything that the prior administration did. And two, the people that are selected to lead the organizations are selected because they don't believe in the mission of the agency or department. Mm -hmm. And so that is undermining the uh, spirit and morale of the career folks. And that it was noted in the Washington Post a few weeks ago, the high level of 
the high number of uh, senior career folks that are leaving government work mm -hmm. because it's just demoralizing. Mm -hmm. And I know I have a couple of friends that are trying to hold on just to be faithful to the work and to the mission that they've done, but it's extremely, extremely difficult. Um, so I, I, I know what he's saying, that it is how it gets carried out, mm -hmm. but I have to say that leadership at the top makes a difference. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I can't, because that's where the uh, directions get set. Well, that it's was not his like concern. That's where the work gets done. Yeah. But that's where the directions get set. Yeah, yeah, and and there's not a capacity within these agencies for the, for example, let's say you went to, um, uh, what's the what's an agency that deals with the environment? EPA. Okay. Environmental so, Protection Agency. So let's say yeah. we go straight to the EPA. You've got people there who you would probably call. Um, you know, career professionals within that field who are just deeply dedicated to the mission of the EPA. They've been around for decades or they're new and they're on fire and they want to, you know, stop global warming and they want to save our ability to survive on the planet. And then this person, you know, gets elected and lands in the Oval Office and starts sort of like causing a ruckus. There's not a capacity within the EPA for there to be resistance to, you know, I mean, like if, if every four years you had a different president, how would the EPA maintain a constant movement forward towards its goals if you had this back and forth thing going on up at the top? Right. Well, historically, it's not been as dramatic as this shift. Because the shift between uh, President Bush and President Obama, yeah, there were some changes, but it was not drastic. Mm -hmm. This shift this time is all about undoing everything that the last administration did. And one of the things that's really challenging is they this administration doesn't have a positive agenda on anything. Right. And so I think... Ordinarily, you can build on what's gone, maybe tweak it. Um, like uh, in the Department of Education, before in the Bush administration, there had been a focus on early childhood. Well, the Obama administration continued that mm -hmm. and then emphasized the increase in Pell Grants and some other, um, you know, um, uh, what, what do they call it? You know, high, institutes of higher learning to improve right. that. And they went after some of the uh, lending institutions that were charging exorbitant rates and trying to make it better for college students. Right. But they continued the work that had been done by the Bush administration. This administration comes in and DeVos, uh, Secretary DeVos is trying to undermine all of it. Right. And promote private uh, for-profit educational facilities while undercutting the work that's been done before. So I think this is sort of an extreme mm -hmm. and I'm hopeful that the American people will wake up to that mm -hmm. uh, and say, no, that's not who we are. That's not what we want. This is not where we go because what we'll find is, is it's not beneficial to our nation. And right. isn't that who, what we care about most right. It's what works best for our nation, not what works best for a few angry people or for com uh, the corporate interests. Let's be real. We want to care for the people. The economy should serve the people, not people serve the economy. Right.
So on your website here, networklobby.org, um, there's a specific page related to Nuns on the Bus 2018, and it talks about your goal, which is to tell the truth about the Republican tax law, hold elected officials accountable for their votes, and in particularly, here's the positive Nuns on the bus will encourage voters to focus electoral energy on reasonable revenue for responsible programs ahead of the 2018 midterms. So your hope is that you will be able to empower people through insight, information, and knowledge to vote effectively in 2018 so that the people who represent them will actually be working for them and not against them. That's right. And to see the connections between tax policy and what we care about in our communities. And we're not advocating, you know, to return to, to, I don't know if people know this, but until President Reagan's time, the top tax bracket was 70%. Mm -hmm. And he, he cut it down to, I think it was 33. But the the fact is, we're not advocating to 70% top tax rate, though mm-hmm. I think it might be a good idea. Uh, it helped keep CEO salary under control and within reach of the, you know, strat- not in the stratosphere. Right. But the, what we are advocating is that responsible programs, social service programs get audited annually. They are the most effective programs we have going and that we should raise reasonable revenue and pay for it. I actually am a fiscal conservative. I believe we should pay for what we need. Mm-hmm. And that means being uh, raising the revenue we need if we believe that it is a, um, you know, a worthwhile program. So right. Right. that's, that's what we're trying to do is help people see the connection, see that we can be responsible and not create a 47,000 year hole right. in our nation. So, Democracy <laughs> is when the people all get involved. And if you look at these countries that have lots and lots of effective social programs, those social programs don't exist, become some little minority foisted it upon the people. Those programs exist because the vast majority of the people brought them into being intentionally. And what we have in America, where we claim to be this great democracy that's going to export democracy around the world as our excuse to go militarily invade other places, we have a not functioning. We are not a democracy. When 25% or less of your population engages, it means that the policies going forward do not reflect the people. Oh, that's interesting. That's a real interesting perspective. Yeah. So I'm wondering what ways do you hope to encourage people to get involved voting as a minimum, but other ways as well. What type of engagement do you encourage or what have you seen people do as a result of your nuns on the bus tours in the past? Well, what what we've seen is that folks begin to talk to each other in a way that's different. And I encourage what I call grocery store missionary work, where we just talk to people in the grocery store. People are afraid to talk about politics these days because it's so volatile. Yep. And so I'm just... All you have to do is ask a simple question. You know, what do you about what you care about? I mean, I'm really worried about wages and that wages are so flat. And so I'll say to somebody, 
standing in line at the grocery store. I don't stand in line often, but at the grocery store I do. And they'll right. say to somebody in front of me or behind me, uh, I'm really worried about how flat wages are. Do you, do you worry about that? And what I've found is people do worry. Mm-hmm. And they've got ideas, but we just never talk to each other about it. Right. And so and encourage activity that way. I think one of the things with the bus, though, the other piece about it is that people that come out discover they're not alone. And too often, ordinary folk feel really alone in their worry and concern. And that's why they don't vote. I, I encountered a, a woman, um, a young woman, a mom of two in Indianapolis before the 2016 election. And I was in a GED class, a, a continuing ed class, people getting their high school equivalency. Right. And I got the f- 25 adults talking about how they, um, what they were worried about in the election. They were worried about wages and housing. And then I showed, we had created these two videos side-by-sides comparing the policies of Clinton and Trump. Just a 90-second video side-by-sides. Clinton believes this, Trump believes that on housing and wages. And then it's me in the video saying, so you decide who's best for our nation. Who will you vote for on November 8th for president? And this young woman, Thomasina, blurted out after seeing these two 90-second videos, I wasn't going to vote. I was afraid I would hurt our country, but now I can vote. And I I just said, what? You were afraid you would hurt our country? And it turned out all she had seen were the negative ads on television. And she did not have any trusted information about how to choose Mm -hmm. between these uh, candidates who were savaged by either side. Right. And so it made me realize I had never thought of not voting as an ethical issue, mm-hmm. but I'm highly connected to politics and I never thought about what it would be if you weren't connected. I mean, she's a mom of two. She's working two jobs. She's trying to care for her girls. She, you know, it's hard life. And all she saw was television. Right. So I think we, we have some responsibility for responsible education and helping give people Uh, good information like the League of Women Voters do great work but how do we communicate that to folks that wouldn't ordinarily be connected so that's where I see our responsibility is is give people trusted information and then they can make a decision but all these negative ads all these political campaign ads ugh, they should be banned in my book yeah and it's, it's interesting I've never I don't think I've ever lived in a swing state you know, like those poor people, There's a couple of states where they just get inundated. And I can imagine that just, whoa, but um, yeah, don't live in Iowa. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. But I also don't, um, we don't have cable. I think we have a couple of bunny ears. So my husband can, you know, maybe watch a sports thing every once in a while. And of course, every like nine seconds, it freezes. And, you know, and I'm like, how can you handle that? But um, so we have been anti um, any type of paid television, you know, since the kids were super young. And so I tend to forget just how inundated people can be if they have the culture or the family habit of flip on the TV and have it running for a couple hours every evening. Wow, you are just a victim of of some really intensely manipulative content that is being put out there. And so it's very possible that a lot of people, when they looked at the ballot in 2016, they saw two unacceptable options. 
And I I imagine a lot of people felt I'm uncomfortable here. I'm uncomfortable there. Therefore, I don't I'm just not going to vote. There was um, my husband said there was some study that was done or they did some number crunching, something like 89,000 votes in a particular state or district had been filled out. But the top vote of the presidency had just been left blank. Eighty nine thousand people just said, I'm not voting on that. I'm not even going to go there, but I'll vote on all these other things. And that that was the margin of difference between, you know, whether Trump won or or, um, Clinton won in that state. So, yeah, there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that are affecting us right now. When you guys go through these states, and let me see here. So, all right, everyone. For anyone who's joined us recently, you're listening to Prose Poetry and Purpose here on Voice of Ashon, 101.9 FM. I am your host, March Twisdale, and I am talking with Sister Simone Campbell, who wrote a book um, called A Nun on the Bus, How All of Us Can Create Hope, Change, and Community. And she is also, you are organizing or participating in the current the- tour? That's right. I'm the leader of Nuns on the Bus. Okay. There we go. And you guys are starting off in Santa Monica. So, hey, folks, if you have friends who live in Santa Monica, you can, um, there's going to be like a kickoff party, right? That's right. We're going to have a big kickoff party, 1030 in the morning at Ocean View Park. It's up on our website. And uh, we're going to have a great time. It's going to be great. Oh, yeah. I imagine so. if you live anywhere along the route, join us. One of the fun things about our bus is, if you commit to work on this, uh, to care about the common good, to engage the common good and reasonable revenue for responsible programs, right. then we invite you to sign a pledge card and then sign our bus. And signing uh, the bus has become one of the best things ever because by the end of the trip, it's no longer just nuns on the bus, but we're all on the bus together. Right. So it's a joy. Right, right. So that's um, October 8th, and then you guys will be in Mar-a-Lago, Florida, on November 2nd, and it says there's going to be a fiesta for the common good. Yes? Yes, we're going to have a, well, we're going to, first we're, uh, if we get the, we're hoping for the permit. We don't have the permit in hand yet, but our plan is to have a parade by Mar-a-Lago, and uh, we think of it as the antithesis of the tax policy, to have nuns on the bus, which is actually about simple, engaged, concerned for the 100%, versus uh, the icon of who benefited most from this tax policy. And so that's the juxtaposition. So we're going to have a a parade of cars and our bus past Mar-a-Lago and then end up at a park to do a fiesta for the common good. And, well, we're going to bring in some food and stuff, but what we're asking is everybody bring something, that it be a potluck. Because our nation should be about everybody brings something to our nation and we all get to share in the vast variety and we're all fed. So yeah. that's what we're yeah. doing. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's, I, I, I wish I could be there. I know. Come, come. It'll be fun. All righty. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, an honor to do it. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. I just really appreciate um, everything you're doing. And I, you know, there's, I think people have been taught that the ultimate pleasure is to go spend your money on consuming activities or resources or whatever. But I have for so long found that 
I never am happier than if I am involved in like a community work party or, you know, whether you're building a barn with people or helping someone out that there is a true deep joy that comes from being a part of a positive community activity. Amen. That's it. And why not just do that your whole life long and always live joyful? <laughs> Great idea, especially in this day and age. So if we're together, then we can have joy. Yeah, I mean, the world is going to be what we make of it. So we might as well make something awesome. <laughs> All righty, um, folks, thank you so much for tuning in. My name is March Twisdale. My guest today has been Sister Simone Campbell. And you can look up her book it is called A Nun on the Bus, How All of Us Can Create Hope, Change, and Community. And go to the website networklobby.org to pay, you know, track what's going on with their tour across the nation. Thank you so much for tuning in. And remember, if you miss some of the show, you can go to marchtwisdale.com for all episodes of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guests share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time.